And for the rest of us, we can take our Bibles and go together to the Old Testament book of Ezra. Ezra, looking at the last chapter here in chapter 10. You know, I don't know if they're still current. I, I distinctly remember back in the 70s, there was a cult called the Unification Church led by a, a guy called the Reverend Sun Young Moon. And one of the traits, one of the marks that they left in the imprint upon our culture, uh, it was not in addition to being called Moonies after the name of the leader, but they had these times where they would have these weddings and the weddings were massive. Uh, sometimes they would have thousands at a time and the Reverend Moon would get up there and, and wed them. And uh, so, you know, it's quite the uh, bridal party you got out there, except everyone is a bride or a groom. Well, today's passage is something where this is not happening. In fact, if anything, we're going in the opposite direction. Uh, it is going to be about a mass divorce with the express purposes of God's people disentangling themselves from relationships that were moving them towards a syncretism and a oneness and a worship of other gods. I thought about what do I title today's sermon? I thought, well, maybe I call it The Great Divorce. But C.S. Lewis already has that copyrighted, so uh, I have to leave that up with him. I was talking with a gentleman about this text a few weeks ago, and he said, you know, you've said God makes you live a text before you preach it. Well, don't worry, I have no intentions of uh, divorcing my wife, Karen. Love her deeply and very much. Um, but uh, we had a good laugh over that. I won't tell you his name, but his initials were Peter Crowder. Um, <laughs> but I want to challenge you on this, that while divorce looks to be the topic of the passage that we're going to be examining today, at, at, at its core, it's not really the issue. Really, the issue is about a divorce or a separation from that which separates you from God. That's what it's going to ultimately surround itself around. So it's going to use a problem going on with the exiles, the new people coming back into Israel as a nation. It's going to use them as an example to illustrate it. And, uh, but it's, it's a hard text to teach because you're trying to make a positive uh, point out of a negative example. And that can often be difficult. So we'll pray that God can oversee that obstacle for us today. And part of my problem that I have is presenting this truth to you in such a way that no one goes out here and goes, well, divorce is no big deal. Uh, we can all just move on. And, you know, if that happens to come up, well, then we'll be fine. And I just sort of like, no, that's not the case. I did an entire sermon on this when we were going through Matthew when Jesus addressed it. And one of the things that I'll remind you about is the Old Testament did permit divorce, but it was a permission in light of sin. It's never encouraged. It's never uh, endorsed by God as an option to go through. And then when you get into the New Testament, it's the same thing. The New Testament has only a few cases where it says this is a permissible thing. Uh, one in particular being when you come to Christ after you've already been married and both of you were unsaved and only one person becomes a Christian. The New Testament addresses what happens if the non-Christian decides, I don't want to be married to you anymore. And in that instance, the Apostle Paul says, well, you can let them leave, but you're not going to initiate that, and you're not going to encourage them to leave. You're not going to drive them away, because you can be salt and light in that relationship and in that home. So the Bible's very clear that this, that even though we're going to be looking at a number of divorces that happen here, this is not the direction that God encourages his people to go to. 
So if you weren't here last week, um, chapter 10 is actually part two. Chapter 9 is part one of the story that we're examining. And so chapter 9 was all about Ezra bringing the attention of the people's sin to them and highlighting it. And then a conviction of them about that sin for the purposes then of calling them to a confession of their sin before God. And remember, the sin uh, was they disobeyed God to purpose to marry people who were not committed to the worship of God. And I've got to highlight this again, because sometimes people think, oh, well, was this a form of racism? You know, a Jew couldn't marry someone of a different race? That's not true. Jews could marry someone of a different race. What they couldn't marry is someone of a different faith, or a faith that said we worship God and these other gods. And so as a result, I mean, the Jews had a history of what happened when they allowed this to occur within their culture and within their society. And what happened was people didn't move closer to God. They moved closer towards idolatry. And that was the whole part of the reason they got sent into exile to begin with. So many of the nation had turned towards idolatry. God said, I'm going to give you over to that for 70 years. And it burned them, burned them bad. So now that they've come back, now they're meant to come back and enter into this land and to live pure and holy lives before God, and they're going back into the same practices. And that's what Ezra has come to discover. So Ezra makes the point, you want to go back there? Not on my watch. I'm calling you out. I'm going to bring this to the forefront. Let's look starting in verse 1 of chapter 10 here as we read just a couple of verses, and we'll see what repentance for the people is going to start to look like. Ezra 10.1 says, Now while Ezra was praying and making confession and weeping and prostrating himself before the house of God, a very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel. For the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Yahiel, one of the sons of Elam, said to Ezra, We've been unfaithful to our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. Yet, now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. So with the conviction came the grief. We'll call it godly sorrow that the people have over this. And yet Shechaniah comes and says, okay, we're, we're to be sorry about this sin. Confess it, but we've got hope. This doesn't mean that God necessarily will cast us off. And so he reminds them, he reminds us, all of us, that God can and does forgive us of our sins. Can everybody just say amen? We have to hang on to that. He does forgive for sins. But what that doesn't mean is that we just blow it off, that we treat sin in a careless manner, that we just go, well, yeah, God, I'm sorry, and then we move on with our lives. No, there has to be a, wait a minute, what have I done? Recognize this, bringing it before God, and then allowing our hearts to repent. We're going to turn as a result of this. But what can they do? I mean, they can't atone for their own sins. That, that's not an option. Human beings can't do that. But what they could do was they could let God take care of their sins. But then they're saying, now we're going to have to look at our ways and we're going to have to change them. And that brings us to verse 3. And this is going to show us what repentance looked like for them regarding the resolve that the people are going to have to do exactly that. Verse 3 says, So now let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. And let it be done according to the law. Arise, for this matter is your responsibility and we'll be with you. 
Be courageous and act. Okay, can we all just acknowledge this is where we all start to struggle, right? This is where the text gets really hard for us. And it's, it, part of the struggle is we ask ourselves, no, wait a minute, is this, was this God's will or was this Shechaniah's idea? Because God didn't command it, Shechaniah brought it up. And Ezra has been charged to take an action as a result of it. So was this what God wanted? And some people looking on will say, well, you know, they, they're operating outside of the bounds of what God had prescribed. But this is what, let me tell you what I find interesting about this. The Bible's really silent on whether this was the right action or a wrong action. It doesn't do either one. It doesn't condemn the actions. Now, I want to challenge you all to remember, when we were going through, we looked at chapter 7. And there was a verse that said this about Ezra, that he sought to study the law of God and to practice it and to teach it. And if Ezra had gone back into doing his studies, he could have seen a precedence for this. He would have gone all the way back to the book of, um, of uh, Genesis. And in doing so, he would have seen where Abraham had a wife named Sarah, and they had a child, Isaac. But Abraham also had a handmaid, which was almost the equivalent of a wife, not really. And through her, he had a son named Ishmael. And what did Abraham do? The two just got to fighting. The situation wasn't good. Sarah says, we got to get rid of this couple or this uh, woman, your handmaid and her son. And Abraham says, do what you think is necessary. And so what does she do? Sarah sends her out. And it's almost the exact same thing of what we're going to see here in a few moments. Hagar has to leave along with her son, Ishmael. And the Bible doesn't say Abraham was right or Abraham was wrong to do it. Very difficult. Um, I find it very interesting that God made a point to appear to Hagar and he let her know, I've got you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to take care of you and I'm going to take care of your son. But the Bible doesn't go into whether or not Abraham was right or wrong in what he did in this instance. Um, again, what do we do with it? Because the Old Testament does at times allow for divorce. And yet Malachi, one of the prophets, says God hates divorce, doesn't like it. So what's going to happen? A divorce could only happen if a wife could be convicted of what's called indecency. So it makes me wonder if Ezra wasn't going through his Old Testament and he's looking up and he says, okay, indecency. And he says, here we have these pagan wives who are involved in pagan worship. And to be very candid, a lot of that pagan worship was indecent. But just the act of worshiping another being or another deity could have been perceived as indecent. And if that's the case, then there probably could have been a point to say, according to the law, we can put these wives and their children away. Because it was customary at that time when a divorce happened that the children would go with the mother. Uh, our society has something somewhat similar, generally speaking, not always. Now, again, my struggle, I don't want y'all all walking out of here confused about divorce because, again, the New Testament is very clear for us. This is not something that we're going to do. This is not an option for us to pursue. And then on top of this, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm continuing on the problem. Israel has another problem. They're meant to be a light to the Gentiles. The Gentiles are meant to look and see the worship of the one true God and the obedience to what he has commanded, and it's meant to mark them and to move them and to change them as a culture. And so how are they going to be a light to the nations 
if they've got all these marriages that are assimilating these other religions into their faith. So they react pretty strongly to it, as we're going to see in just a few moments. And then as time goes on, they'll fall back into this practice. Then they'll bounce back yet again uh, to revert, to cast that off. And then you're going to see a prejudice against Gentiles and um, the Samaritans to such a degree that it's going to impact people when Jesus is walking the earth. That the Jews are so separated and so prejudiced, they're going to keep all these people far, far away. So there's just so much that's happening here. And uh, I hope I'm not confusing you through all of it. What do we do with it, though? I think at a minimum, we have to acknowledge this is a unique situation in a different day. All right? So we have to embrace that within the context of what's going on. Their day was different. Now, the consequences of divorce are always damaging. Amen? They're always damaging uh, and very hurtful. Well, Ezra, he hasn't violated the law. Because, again, Deuteronomy 21, God did permit this kind of a divorce. That doesn't necessarily mean God wanted them to practice it. I personally see this as a time when the people and Ezra are basically faced between two evils. Are we going to pursue a marital fidelity at the risk of spiritual infidelity? Or are we going to go for a spiritual fidelity but a marital disintegration? Anybody like those choices? They all are bad, aren't they? You don't like that kind of an either-or prospect. And yet, theologically, this is what they're facing, and it works its way into the practical. Now, this isn't the only time, theologically, people have to wrestle with the lesser of two evils, is there? we got all kinds of doctrines where we struggle with this. I'll give you one in particular. You read your Bible, and you find out something about God, that God desires that all would be saved, that he longs to have everyone come to him, and yet he permits many to not pursue that, and that won't be saved. So the point behind all this, sometimes God allows for things that he doesn't necessarily desire, and that's hard for us. We like to put everything in a clean box, right? To say, well, this is how it all works out, and every time. Sometimes it's messy, and this text shows us this. They were taking an action to remove what they considered to be the potential greater problem of leading the people of God into apostasy. And that's where they're going to do this and repent of their past sins by separating from these relationships. Verse 5, then Ezra rose and made the leading priests, the Levites, and all Israel take oath that they would do according to this proposal. So they took the oath. And then Ezra rose before the house of God and went into the chamber of Yohanan, the son of Eliashib. And although he went there, he didn't eat bread nor drink water, for he was mourning over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. And they made a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem, and that whoever would not come within three days, according to the counsel of the leaders and the elders, all his possessions should be forfeited and he himself excluded from the assembly of the exiles." See, when they're gathering, they're all recognizing something. This is sin, and there's an urgency in how we deal with this. And we can't just let it sit and fester for a long time. So they say, three days, you got to show up. And you don't get to sit on the fence and say, I'm, I'm just going to plead no opinion on this. No, you have, you have to figure out where you land and take action. And it doesn't look like three days was going to be that hard because verse 9 tells us all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. 
It was the ninth month on the 20th of the month, and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and the heavy rain. Interesting, the physical trembling of being cold and immersed in the wetness of the rain, I think it's mirroring here the spiritual and emotional trembling that has, these people have been because they've been immersed in sin. It's just where life reflects doctrine. Well, verse 10, that, then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, you've been unfaithful and have married foreign wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. Now, therefore, make confession to the Lord God of your fathers and do his will and separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. And then all the assembly replied with a loud voice, that's right, as you have said, so it is our duty to do. Is that drastic? Everybody say, yeah, yeah, that's a big deal. It's easy to read that and not think about the pain that people were about to go through and some were struggling with. And it's here we start to get the report about what happened. And it's within the report that we find some other points, I think, that are worth considering for us. The people have an additional response and a request. Verse 13, they say, there are many people. And it's the rainy season. We're not able to stand in the open, nor can the task be done in one or two days, for we have transgressed greatly in this matter. So they recognize that in order to get things set right, they're going to need a little bit of time to enable their physical conditions to not necessarily cause them to do this carelessly. I think there's a lot of wisdom in this. And you understand this as well. I know many of you have heard of that acronym, HALT. And the idea being, don't make decisions when HALT. You are, remember what they stand for? Hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. You have a way of not thinking clearly as a result of it. Well, the Jews have a different acronym. Theirs is WALT. And that means you don't want to be wet also and cold. So they make a proposition here. And it's not a compromise. It is not a compromise. It takes the circumstances of what they're dealing with into account. And they ask, verse 14, let our leaders represent the whole assembly and let all those in our cities who have married foreign wives come at appointed times together with the elders and judges of each city until the fierce anger of our God on account of this matter is turned away from us. So they start with the leaders. Begin there. And let's do this thoroughly. And let's not rush the process. Do a full investigation. Now, the text doesn't say this, all right? So put an asterisk on what I'm about to tell you right now. This is called Jack's opinion. But in my opinion, uh, I can't help but think that this allowed families some time also to sit down and have a Sunday come to meeting, to look at each other, a husband and a wife, across the table from one another and say, what do we believe and what are we going to do in light of this? Now, there may very well have been some spouses who, as a result of this, went, I'm going to trust God and we're going to worship him alone. And if that was the case, it would change things. You wouldn't be forced into a divorce. Wouldn't necessarily require a separation and could have been a big help. This was a chance to consider, again, sort of another Old Testament precedence that we have in the book of Ruth. When, when Ruth, looking at her mother-in-law, makes a comment, where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge, and your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. And there could be some people who could do this. There would be others who could very well be like Orpah, Ruth's, or, um, Naomi's other daughter-in-law, who chose to go back to her homeland 
and her gods. But it, this is a time where everyone gets a chance to make a decision. Are we going to worship God? Now, there's a couple of people that took issue in this. You see it in verse 15. And verse 15 is very hard to interpret. And here's why. It says, only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Jaziel, the son of Tikvah, opposed this, with Meshulam and Shabbatai, the Levite, supporting them. And here's what's hard to interpret. What is it that Jonathan and Jehiah opposed? <laughs> did they oppose the whole process of putting wives away? Or did they oppose the delay in the process? We simply don't know. All I can say about it here is they didn't have unanimity in this decision. They will ultimately have unity, though. Folks, we'll go forward in this process. Because verse 16 says, and the exiles did so. And as for the priests selected men who were heads of father's household for each of their father's households, all of them by name. And so they convened on the first day of the 10th month to investigate the matter. And they finished investigating all the men who had foreign wives by the first day of the first month. So in other words, it took a little bit over three months to get this all sorted out. Now again, I want to give you the reminder. An Israelite could marry a woman who was of a different race. That was not the issue. The issue is, was she Jewish in her faith? This is not about race. This is about worship. What God do you worship? And I think, I can't help but think, again, this may be why it took three months to investigate things so thoroughly. They weren't going to treat this lightly. It required a thorough investigation. It is not a witch hunt. Families have the opportunity, the time to discuss and sort things out. But to ask, well, I worship only God, or am I too afraid of these other gods that I can't do only this God? And so what you find in verses 18 to 44, about 113 families that separated over this. 16 of them were priests. 10 of them were Levites. So these are the people that are leading and conducting worship that are living in this kind of a lifestyle of sin. And they had to purge it and repent. And again, I, were there some spouses that said, sweetheart, listen, I love you, but I love these gods too, and I'm not going there with you. But I'm confident that there were others who said, I've had time, and now I know that these are the gods that I have to put away. I can't worship them. There is only one God. And like Joshua of old, they could proclaim, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And they would unite. A decisive action by all these people to get their worship of the one true God right. It's a big deal. And at the end, this is going to be hard. Hard to swallow. In the end, the text shows us following God was even more important than remaining married in this instance. And living a holy life was more important than holding on to the social and the financial security and stability of a marriage. God takes precedence. Now again, don't take this passage and run away going, I think God can endorse uh, divorce. Now, again, you have to keep coming back to last orders. And the last orders are particularly in um, the New Testament, which I've already explained to you. Um, let me just put a little preaching word in here for all you singles. Those of you not yet married, uh, do not settle. Don't settle. You look for the man, the woman, 
of the opposite sex, I hate I have to say that now, you, you, you look for that individual who doesn't just go to church. That's not enough. They got to have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, and they are determined to grow. They're not going to be perfect. You're not either. You're not looking for the perfect. You are looking for the perfectable. The one who follows the Lord Jesus is going to change and is going to change for the better to become more and more like Christ as time goes on. Don't you settle. Let me speak particularly to you ladies. Ladies, he comes in. He's good looking. He's got those nice glasses. He speaks great. He dances great. Everyone thinks he's so cool. I got news for you. You may be marrying Peter Pan who never grows up. And it seems fun and exciting when you're in your 20s. It ain't fun in your 30s and beyond. You're not going to put up with it. So you got to make sure that the person that you're going after is following the Lord. All the married people said, it's a game changer. Don't you settle for less. Well, what about the marrieds? Stay married. Stay married. And you're going to have to seek God's help if it's not going so good. And God has all kinds of things available for you through his word, through his spirit, and through this, the community of believers, to walk with you and to help you. When it comes to applying this, let me just ask you a little bit of a different question. What in your life do you have a union with that maybe you got to divorce yourself from? What are you wed to that pulls you away from a pure devotion and worship of God? I think in some ways this brings us sort of to the gravity of one of the texts that Jesus said when he was speaking to his disciples. Disciples who he said, if you follow me, there's going to be families members that cast you aside. You remember Matthew 10? He said, he who loves father or mother more than me isn't worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me isn't worthy of me. And there are some of you either currently or maybe one day in the future, that have to make a choice between your family and Christ. Where even family members will say, we can't associate with you unless you hold to and espouse this. And you may have to say, we can't go there. At the end of the day, I have to trust Christ. There are people in other cultures, if they do this, there's a contract put on their head. Because according to the family, they brought shame. And the family can't keep that kind of shame. So you got to take them out. In America, we don't see it that way, but you can be cast out. The term we use now is canceled. Um, Jesus' call, I'm paramount. I'm first and foremost. And that doesn't mean that you're in a, trying to do some effort to separate from these people or cast them out of your presence. Not at all. You're going to love them. You're going to reach out to them. You're going to minister to them. But you cannot surrender your worship of God for them. That's the difference, that you won't bend the knee where God says, you can't bow to that. That's only reserved for me. And if you have gone through this, if you're going through this, God bless you. But that is a choice. I, I sometimes wonder if that isn't a harder choice than losing your life for the sake of the gospel. I don't know. But my goodness, is it hard and is it grievous? And that's the kind of that's the kind of feeling I see in this text. Don't dismiss that. Sending these spouses and their children away. Heartache. But that's on the relationship side of things. Folks, sometimes there's just things that we have that we're wed to. 
and we need to start letting them go. We need to get rid of them because they're not helping us in our worship of Jesus Christ. I see this in in Mark 9 coming from Jesus when he says, if your hand causes you to stumble, you need to cut it off because it's better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell into the unquenchable fire. Now, of course, Jesus is speaking here in hyperbole, all right? Otherwise, when Peter denied Christ, he'd have to go out and cut out his tongue. So this is hyperbole, but it's making the point we can have nothing of greater importance and significance to us such that we will hang on to this at the expense of how it affects how we'll love and serve and worship our God. And if he brings an idol to our attention, one that, or a sin that we've embraced, we not only have to confess that, we've got to start asking ourselves some hard questions. Can I keep this? Can I hang on to this? Do I need to be completely separated from this? For some of you, I mean, it might be as radical as you've got to get rid of your smartphone because you can't handle it. It's taking you down. Well, how am I going to communicate? You're going to have to trust Christ and find some other means to keep that communication. For some of you, it may be something else. Maybe it's like some sort of a subscription that you have or a network or a channel that God has placed that you have in your life and God's placed in your heart as a conviction. We can't have this anymore and have to let it go. I don't know. What is it for you? Holy Spirit will give you that. He'll give you that. But when he does convict you, you've got to ask yourself, what, is, what do acts in keeping with repentance look like? Not a repentance to earn the favor of God. Acts in keeping our repentance as a means of worshiping God with a true and full heart. So let me give you this reminder. There are no acts that you can do, not at all, that can remove the stain of sin. Only the blood of Jesus can do that. That is it. But that doesn't mean that we don't take the effort under the guidance of the Spirit to disentangle ourselves from sin and to remove. We've got to repent. And for some sins, that means you've got to fix it. You've got to amend and correct the wrong if possible. And I'm sorry to say, you know, you think this chapter ends like this. It, it, that's a hard, it kinda, you leave the book with sort of a bad taste in your mouth, don't you? That this is what it took. Well, let me leave a worse taste in your mouth. This didn't solve the problem. Years later, when you look in the book of uh, Nehemiah, they did the exact same thing again. They went right back into doing the exact same things. And this shows us the weakness of mere human resolve. It's so weak. And God would have to get involved here in order to help them even with their repentance. And that brings me to this final point. I personally think there's an aspect to this text that is prophetic. And here's what I mean. I think that if you're going to look and ask yourself, where do I fit in the story? Here's where you and I fit. We're the spouses and the children that have worshipped other gods. And we should be cast out of the community and sent far away. But thanks be to God. Because Jesus came. And Jesus said, You give me those sins. You give me those offenses. You put them on me, and I will be the one who is cast out. And I will bear that for them so they can be the true bride. And you can remain in the land, so to speak, with with God. And I, if you'll allow me a little liberty, when Jesus was on that cross and said, uh, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I don't think it's a stretch for us to say, Why? Have you divorced me? It's because sin can't remain in the camp. 
but he would take it so that you could enter in. Would you bow with me? And let me just ask, perhaps you were someone and you've thought about life, religion, church. Maybe you showed up this morning with the idea that I've got to be good. I have to do certain things for God. I hope this text didn't lead you down that path. This text should show us you can't do anything about it. In fact, if anything, all we bring to Christ is our sin. He is the one who has to take it, and he has. Have you received that? That's love, that God would call on Jesus to take your penalty, to bring you into his presence as his bride. And my charge to you, just receive it. You just receive it and walk in faith in that as he continues to change you from the inside out.